So over the next four weeks, um, Carl in the blue jersey and I will be preaching through the book of Ruth. And you'll be pleased to know we didn't just come up with this in the last 24 hours since Anna had a baby. Uh, It has been in the works for a while and we're really looking forward to bringing this book um, to you over the next month and particularly today as I'll be sharing from the first book of Ruth, um, the first chapter of Ruth, sorry. So I hope you're ready for this and you're ready to be a little bit surprised, hopefully, um, by this unusual sort of text that we find in the Old Testament. Now, I quite like to be surprised. Maybe you're the same. I like to try new things and hopefully um, aim for a positive outcome as I try those new things. And I often find that God teaches us new things when we put ourselves out there and um, sometimes they're in those not really spiritual seeming kind of ways um, when God really reveals things to us. And so recently I helped one of our youth run a hardcore music concert. Now many of you might not know what hardcore is or even that it's a genre of music. Um, It is and it's quite loud and while the bands that were playing at this event were all Christian, it can sound quite angry from the outset. Um, But really what the musicians are singing screaming, yelling, growling about is actually the impact of Jesus in their own life. So just like any, um, any other form of music can be. And so I surprised myself by enjoying myself a little bit at this, at this gig that we were helping to run. Most of the time, um, I was actually up the back of the room um, eating my homemade hummus and crackers. Um, and I took a moment halfway through the night to look at myself and think, I'm really not fitting in here. Um, but I don't mind. I don't really care. But I did, I did enjoy myself a little bit because the way that the musicians um, and the teenagers approached this event was with such enthusiasm and energy um, and positivity, and that surprised me um, even in that moment. Recently, I also tried paddle boarding. Has anyone ever done paddle boarding? Oh, it's a few. Um, if you don't know what it is, it's basically like standing on a surfboard and you have a paddle. Uh, logically, and it only has one sort of, I don't know, oar thing, and so you're swapping hands and paddling as you glide effortless, effortlessly throughout the water um, on this paddleboarding. And so I did this um, recently, and I surprised myself by managing to stay on most of the time um, and managing to stand up, which I didn't expect I was going to be able to do. Um, and the one time that I did fall in, um, it was really only because. The instructor had told us that everybody, in in all of his classes, at least one person always falls over. And I needed to make sure that that statistic was held true for him so that he was a reputable instructor. And so that was basically why I sort of face-planted into the water there. But I surprised myself by managing to stay on and try a new skill and um, put myself out of my comfort zone for that for that experience. And in the same way, um, I've really enjoyed being surprised as I've been reading through this book of Ruth. Having not done a lot of study in it before, I've been really enjoying doing some reading and preparation for the sermon series. And so I hope you're also um, surprised by the twists and the turns that this book has. Now, as we've been reading through it, I've been talking to people about the book of Ruth and had a few different comments. Um, One person said that they thought it was a boring book And so Carl and I took that as a challenge. Uh, And somebody else also told me that they thought it was just a kind of pointless segue that came off after the book of Judges. Um, Somebody else told me that they thought it was kind of 
Mills and Boone romantic comedy about how to find and capture your Boaz. And so there's a few different um, sort of fields of thought about this book, and it must be quite a mysterious or maybe misunderstood, misunderstood story if those are the range of ideas that we find about this book. So I'd like to challenge us all as we track through it over the next few weeks to start afresh, maybe put aside some of those ideas if they're ones you hold in your mind, and maybe treat it as a friendly stranger and prepare to be pleasantly, I hope, surprised as we read it. We will see, hopefully, that it's not just a love story. It's not a pointless dog leg off the book of Judges, and it's by no means boring. So let's pray as we start today. God, we are in awe of your hugeness, and we thank you for your faithfulness this morning. And we pray that as we journey through the book of Ruth, that you would take us by surprise and teach us new and exciting things about yourself and our place in your story that is working itself out. I pray that the words that I speak today would be yours and that you would put aside anything that is not of use and that you would be close to us this morning. Amen. Now, I thought I'd start by reading the whole book of Ruth from a children's Bible, so don't be worried, I'm not going to be talking for long. Um, I bet you wish you could see the pictures, though. You can't, so. I thought I'd just read that quickly so that we get the big picture, and then in a little while I'll be reading from the first chapter, which is what we're focusing on today. So, Ruth. Ruth lived far away from Judah, the land of God's people. But she lived with Naomi, who had come from Judah. Ruth had married Naomi's son, but he had died. Naomi's husband had died too. Now Naomi wanted to go back to Judah. Go back to your mother and father, Naomi told Ruth. But Ruth said, please take me with you. I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So Naomi took Ruth with her to Judah. In Judah, Ruth had to work to get food for them to eat. She worked in the fields. She picked up the grain that was left over after the harvest. The farmer of that field was named Boaz. Boaz knew that Ruth was helping Naomi. He told his farm helpers to leave grain, especially for Ruth. He was glad she was picking up grain in his field. And Ruth knew that Boaz was a kind man. Boaz fell in love with Ruth. He married her. They had a baby named Obed, and they were happy together. Obed became the grandfather of David, a great king, and in the line to Jesus. So, let's meet the book of Ruth. Now, the fact that the book is even called Ruth is the first surprise, because as we'll discover, Ruth was a Moabite, and not part of God's chosen people group. And so the book could have been named Naomi or Boaz, two of the other characters in the story, but instead it was named after a non-Israelite. And in fact, it's the, it's the only Old Testament book to be named after a non-Israelite. And it's named after a woman at that. And it is this Moabite woman who becomes part of the big story of God's redemption throughout the Bible, as we'll see. Now, already we are sensing that there are some little surprises hidden within this book. 
So let's start with its context. We can't read any book in the Bible without thinking about where it was originally set and taking place. And there are so many references here that take us back to the Old Testament and then forward to the New Testament. The last verse of Judges gives us a pretty good sense of the book's setting and place in the biblical story. So Judges 21-25 says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So the final verse in Judges reveals quite accurately the depravity of the previous few chapters in Judges. In fact, if you feel like a really depressing read, then, and a read that would even rival the scandal that we might find in our own society, then have a read of the last few chapters of Judges, because it contains some of the most gruesome accounts in the whole Bible. It seems to chronicle the infidelity of Israel and the flow-on effects that this had on the people. Israel is left without a king. No leader, no example, no model. God had raised up a series of leaders, or judges, as we call them, to guide, rescue, and challenge the people back to himself. But as we see over and over again, they did whatever they saw fit. Or in another translation, they did what was right in their own eyes. They turned away from God, and this led down a slippery slope, which we read in Judges. Idol worshipping, murder, military invasions, foreign oppressors, and famine. And following this verse comes this little four-chapter book called Ruth. It's a stark contrast and reminder that it was possible to be faithful to God and trust in his providence during this dark, dark time. And we see a faithful community of people that managed to stay true to God during the time of the judges. So today we read from Ruth chapter 1. I'll be reading from NIV, and the words uh, will be on the slides. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kelon also died, and Naomi was left without her two husbands, without her two sons and her husband. Sorry. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters, 
I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So it is a famine that sets the tone for this book of Ruth. It was a pretty dark time in history, and famine itself is quite an appropriate uh, metaphor, image, this kind of black, empty hunger for fulfillment. Naomi and her husband and two sons had fled to Moab on the promise of food. Can you imagine if that was your most pressing need, the reason you would leave everything for food? In the land of Moab, we read briefly that Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons marry Moabite women. Now, ten or so years later, we see that Naomi's two sons both tragically die, leaving their wives and their mother. What could be worse than this but that the fact that neither couple had produced any children? So Naomi is left alone with no family line other than her two daughters-in-law. And so quickly, in the first five verses of this book, we meet Naomi the widow. Now, in this kind of patriarchal society that Ruth and Naomi were living in, a widow had basically no standing. Without a man, her worth was pretty low. And it's quite a different time to now because then these women couldn't, by themselves, make their situation any better. They needed male family members to represent them and to provide for them. And of course, the most terrifying thing of all is that this term, widow, can attach itself to somebody often without any warning. And so Ruth and Naomi would not have known necessarily or had time to prepare themselves for the stage of life that they were about to enter. Both women are left alone. Naomi is left with no children and no ability to bear any more, and Ruth is left without a husband and the security that that would bring her in producing an heir. The suffering is almost tangible. Now, often when we read the Bible, we associate suffering in the biblical story with the character and the book of Job, 
Now, he lost his children and his livelihood, and he has big, real questions for God in the midst of suffering. As I've been reading, though, and I sympathize with Naomi, her suffering also seems huge. Now, not that we want to compare or um, contrast pain for grief, but let's try and understand that for Naomi to be left without a husband or sons left her with no voice, no rights, She was vulnerable and powerless. The Hebrew word for widow comes from a word that means unable to speak, the silent one. So in this male-dominated society that she was in, Naomi's voice was not going to be heard now. Pretty huge. We see, though, in the rest of Scripture that God holds the widow in high regard. He hears the voice of the widow as he hears all of the voices of his children. In the kingdom of God, there's no hierarchy. Men and women are all his image bearers, no matter their status, their circumstance, or even the view of themselves. God particularly seems to emphasize the people that are on the margins of society, and widows fit this bill. While we often ignore or don't really know what to do with these kinds of people, God never did ignore them. He never does, and he never will. Throughout the Old Testament, we read multiple instructions to take care of the widow and the fatherless. And we also read that there are laws made just to provide for these people. The psalmists refer to God as a defender and a sustainer of the widows, and the prophets plead with us to take up their cause. Jesus described widows who were persistent with him and who gave everything they had, even if that was hardly anything at all. So for Jesus to give so much airtime to a group of people in society meant something. Not only was he talking about widows, but he was interacting with them. And there's a story in the New Testament when Jesus brings back to life um, the son of a widow because he feels such great compassion for her plight. And so not only was he restoring the man's life, but he was restoring the widow's life as well. So this width and breadth of scripture clearly outlines that the widow has worth and value. But at that time, in this stage of the story, Naomi doesn't feel this. She doesn't feel valued or provided for. She has yet to see God's protection over her life. Now, it will no doubt come when she least expects it and come as a surprise. But you can begin to understand the depths of her despair the depths of her grief and loss. It would have been a devastating blow to lose her husband and then two sons. You can probably also imagine her disappointment in God and the questions she might be asking. What are you doing? Where are you? When will you come through for me? Now, we may not be on the same scale as Naomi or experienced the same things, but we know these moments. We have a glimpse of these moments when it seems like there's a spiritual famine going on and all seems empty. We know this grief. We know this hunger for more. But we also know that the story isn't over yet. This is only chapter one, the first act. But Naomi doesn't know that yet. In here, we find a surprising moment of hope for her, even when she is dealing with such huge pain and disappointment in God. There's a glimmer here that God is up to something in the rest of the story. 
So as Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, begin to return to Bethlehem to search for food, Naomi stops them, and she urges her daughters-in-law to leave her and go back to their own family for, her own, for their own support and for a greater chance of finding another husband. Naomi feels that she has nothing left to offer them, and even that she is bitter and empty. So initially they need convincing that they should leave her, but then Orpah does. She doesn't owe anything to Naomi, and so she goes. But the text says that Ruth clings to Naomi, and instead of leaving her, she pledges her loyalty to to Naomi. In verse 16 to 17, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Now this is a pretty powerful statement, that one you might have seen written on I know, cards or inspirational um, plaques if you've been around Christendom for a while, but it's a pretty huge statement. And we look at it and think, is Ruth committing herself to Naomi or to God? So let's look at it a bit more. So far, Naomi has been, rightfully so, upset and grieving for her losses. But other than that, we don't have a lot to suggest how close Ruth and Naomi actually were. We know they've been family to each other for years, but maybe the men in their life were the only thing that connected them together. We don't know. And this may have been the case because the Moabite people and the Israelite people were not always the best of friends. And so perhaps relations were a bit tense between Naomi and the wives that her sons chose for themselves. So whatever the case, we don't seem to, the text doesn't give us any indication of how close they were before or after this exchange on the road out of Moab. So I don't think it was just her relationship with Naomi that kept Ruth with her, and she says this herself. There was still no guarantee that if uh, Ruth returned back to her own family that she would find a husband, but there was more chance that she would than if she aligned herself to Naomi who was grieving and maybe even depressed. So why would she do that? Why would she choose to pledge her loyalty to this woman? There must have been something bigger going on here. And within these verses, we get surprised again because all of a sudden, Ruth pledges that your God will be my God. Ruth here is committing herself not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. She's making her own pledge of faith, her own commitment of faith. She doesn't even know the end of her story yet. We know the bigger picture. We've read briefly, albeit, the full picture of the story, but she doesn't know that. She's only dealing with her own reality at the time. And even in spite of this, in spite of these circumstances, which would seem huge, she commits to stick with Naomi because she is committed to her God. How did she know about God, you might wonder? We can only assume that Naomi and her husbands, her husband and sons, were aware of their own place in the story of God. And so they shared these things with these two Moabite women that came into their life. So maybe these stories of God's faithfulness and closeness throughout their ancestors, maybe these stories were told around their family dinner table. Now, it doesn't seem to suggest that Naomi was a particularly enthusiastic evangelist, but just that maybe in her ordinary 
day-to-day interactions with these women, she was portraying the realities of God and his grace and faithfulness to them. I remember a few years ago being quite excited to hear that some of my relatives, I think a great-great-grandfather, was a missionary to the Inuit people. And maybe you have similar stories of people in your life, either overseas missionaries or being Christians in your own family. Maybe you don't have these stories in your background, but maybe you will be the ancestors and the relatives that your future generations hear stories of as you live out your daily, ordinary obedience to God. And so maybe these sort of stories were the stories that these women heard and began to form a picture around the bigness of God for themselves. So even in really, really hard situations, there must have been some awareness for Ruth that God is in control and that God is faithful and that God provides and cares for his people, even in the middle of such suffering. Now, she would not have made this claim lightly. You can imagine that kind of situation. It wouldn't just be a light off the cuff sort of statement. This was a huge statement of faith for Ruth. And so Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem as the chapter closes, just as the barley harvest was beginning. And even this end of that verse seems to hint that something is just about to happen in chapter 2. There is so much more to this story to come. But already we start to see that God is the hero of this story, the hidden character, but the character that is orchestrating events that appear to surprise the other players. Throughout this chapter, we meet two widows who are in the midst of huge suffering, but still pledge themselves to God and to each other. They honestly don't know where their story will end, but still they commit to God. Their grief and their hunger is almost tangible, but God is also with them and close. He is faithful and he continues to surprise even them. Now this is the same God that is close to us today, as was close to Ruth and Naomi. God continues to work through ordinary image bearers like you and me to reveal his redemption for all of creation. We also hold on to this hope that God is in control and that he is faithful, even in the middle of the famines or the griefs that we might be feeling. And it's not an empty hope, because just like Ruth, we surround ourselves with stories of redemption, of God's faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of people close to us. We immerse ourselves in the story. And just like these women, we wait for more surprises from God. Let's pray as we close. God, we've begin, we've begun to sense this huge suffering that would have been felt by Ruth and Naomi. But even in the middle of this, we sense that you are in this story and that you are working. And in the same way, God, sometimes even when we don't feel your presence or your closeness to us, we know because of your faithfulness that you are working today in our lives and in the lives of people around us. We pray today that you would continue to surprise us and to remind us of who you are 
Help us to show each other the realities of your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for the reminder of this from these two women, and we look forward to more that you will be revealing to us throughout this story. And we thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.